the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 62 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. See, what they couldn't understand is why Jesus would say this about this incredible temple. Lord, look at these stones. Look at this structure. How can you say this? How could destruction ever take place with this magnificent temple? So in pointing out the temple to Jesus, here's what they're really asking. Lord, why leave and abandon this brilliant place? This place where God dwells among his people. This place which has taken such a long time to build. This place that was originally built to the glory of God by Solomon and then Ezra. And now was in the process of being enhanced and beautified. Why, Jesus, would you say to the nation that their house is now being left to them desolate? Why? At this point in their walk with the Lord Jesus, the disciples didn't understand how their long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, was going to establish his kingdom on earth. They wanted freedom from the iron fist of Rome. They couldn't grasp that his kingdom was going to start in the hearts of men and women who would follow him. We're glad you have tuned in to Verse by Verse for today's class. Pastor Steve Kreloff will be continuing his discussion of Matthew chapter 24, what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse, since it was delivered on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Pastor Steve begins today's lesson with a review of when Jesus had silenced his accusers at the end of Matthew chapter 22, and then goes on the offensive. Here is Pastor Steve. So having left them speechless, now it was his turn to go on the offensive by making some accusations of his own. And that's exactly what he does. First, he warns the disciples and the crowd, the multitude who had gathered around him to hear him teach. He warns them not to be like the wicked scribes and the Pharisees because these were terribly evil men. And he mentions how evil they they were. First, he accuses them of being hypocrites. They're uncaring, greedy men who cared only about gaining prestige and honor for themselves. They loved the greetings. They loved to be called rabbi. They did everything to be noticed by men. Then the Lord turns to these scribes and Pharisees and addresses them directly by pronouncing seven judgments. These are woe judgments upon them for their many hypocrisies. Finally, when the last of the woe judgments have ended, the Lord expresses great personal anguish and grief about Israel's rejection of him. He says that his desire was always to gather them together like a mother, a mother hen gathers and protects her baby chicks from harm. He said, but you were unwilling to do that. You were unwilling to respond to me. That's chapter 23, verse 37. Then the Lord announces to the people that there is a penalty for rejecting him. And that penalty was that God was going to abandon them, going to withdraw from them. 
Remember chapter 23, verse 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house refers to the whole nation, but the heart of the nation was the temple. Understand that. That's how they would have understood it. The nation, but the heart of the nation, the soul of the nation is the temple. That's where worship took place, where God's glory dwelt. Their whole sacrificial system about approaching God based out of the temple, temple worship. But then he went on to say that this abandonment was only temporary. Verse 39. For I say to you that from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, there's coming a day when you'll see me again. And when you see me again, then you will really recognize who I am. You'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll recognize that I'm your Messiah. Now, folks, it's right after this statement that Jesus and his disciples left the temple area. Right after saying, this place is abandoned, you'll not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got up and they begin to leave the temple area. They walk out through the eastern gate, departing from the city of Jerusalem, and they begin to head back to the village of Bethany to spend the night there, just beyond the Mount of of olives. But Matthew tells us that while they were leaving the temple area, while they were still there, but leaving that area, the Lord's disciples say something that is very interesting. Verse one, Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, Mark, in his gospel account, tells us additional information that gives us more insight about what's really going on here. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1, we read, And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, why would the disciples point out the wonderful stones and buildings of the temple? Jesus knew how wonderful they were. He had just spent days there. He was aware of this. He knew about the temple stones, the buildings that comprise this area. He's very familiar with them. So why would any of his disciples feel the need to point this out to him? Well, for one thing, this temple was magnificent. It wasn't unusual for someone to admire. It was breathtaking. It was absolutely magnificent. It was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And there are many who considered the temple building to be the most beautiful structure standing at that time in history. Keep in mind, the temple wasn't simply a building. It was it was a building, but it was an entire complex consisting of the sanctuary. There were various courts where people would gather. There were balconies, colonnades, porches. The temple complex was massive in size, too. It took up one sixth of the size of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem today has expanded far beyond the ancient boundaries. But in that day, it was one-sixth, the temple complex, one-sixth of the whole city. Here's how Josephus, the Jewish historian, described the beauty of the temple. He wrote, and I quote, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye, for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. 
to approaching strangers that appeared from a distance like a snow clad mountain for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So it must have been absolutely gorgeous. And it was. Now, remember, this was not the original temple that Solomon built. That temple was destroyed in the 7th century B.C. by the Babylonians. This temple was the one that Ezra had built in the 6th century B.C. when the Jewish people had returned from exile. Now, keep that in mind. But 50 years, about 50 years before Jesus was born, in an attempt to win over the Jewish people and to keep them busy with the project so they wouldn't rebel, Herod the Great decided to enhance and to beautify and to expand the temple area. This was not a quick project, though. And I'd like you to look at John chapter 2 for something fascinating, some insight about this project. In John chapter 2, there's a misunderstanding, but out of this misunderstanding, we're given some historical insight. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them. He's talking to the Jewish leaders. He answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, folks, he's referring to himself, but they don't know that. They just hear the word temple, so they assume it's their temple. But notice their response. The Jews then said, the Jews, whenever John says the Jews, he means the Jewish leaders. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple And will you raise it up in three days? But John says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Nonetheless, from their misunderstanding, we're told something that's significant. We're told that this building project, this Herod the Great's enhancement of the temple area, had taken 46 years. It's still going on. This conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders took place, let's say, about 30, 30 A.D. And it had taken 46 years up to that point, and it still wasn't finished. The project would not be completed for about another 30 more years until 64 A.D., which meant that this entire undertaking took about 80 years When all was said and done, this was an absolutely gorgeous structure with massive stones the size of boxcars weighing up to 100 tons, all polished, decorated with gold or shining white if it wasn't gold. It was a magnificent sight to behold, and it must have been breathtaking to look at. So we can easily appreciate why the Lord's disciples would comment on the wonder of the stones and and the buildings, especially since most of these men were from uh, Galilee. They were from the rural part of Galilee. In fact, in that time, Galilee was all rural. And they were not accustomed to large buildings, such as would be in Jerusalem, let alone a structure of this magnitude. So they were awestruck by it. However, the aesthetic beauty of the temple complex wasn't the real reason that the disciples pointed out these buildings to Jesus. The reason they mentioned the magnificence of the temple to Christ was because of the statement they had just heard the Lord make about the temple being abandoned. They remembered what he said. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. 
They understood that by that statement that Jesus was pronouncing divine judgment on not only the nation, but the temple in the nation, along with the whole system of worship and the sacrifices of animals that took place in the temple, they understood correctly that Christ's statement about desolation implied destruction. And they knew what he meant, that God was about to withdraw his presence and his protective hand and allow the Gentiles to come in and destroy this magnificent temple. And that's what bothered them. That's really at the heart of what they're saying. See, what they couldn't understand is why Jesus would say this about this incredible temple. Lord, look at these stones. Look at this structure. How can you say this? How could destruction ever take place with this magnificent temple? So in pointing out the temple to Jesus, here's what they're really asking. Lord, why leave and abandon this brilliant place? This place where God dwells among his people, this place which has taken such a long time to build, this place that was originally built to the glory of God by Solomon and then Ezra, and now was in the process of being enhanced and beautified. Why, Jesus, would you say to the nation that their house is now being left to them desolate? Why? Now, I don't know what the disciples expected Jesus to say, how they expected him to respond to their statement about the greatness and glory and grandeur of the temple. But what he did say to them must have shocked them. Must have shocked them. Verse two. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. The Lord begins here by acknowledging that, yes, the temple is magnificent. That's what he means. Do you not see all these things? Do you, do you not see the splendor, the grandeur, the sturdiness, the beauty of this temple? You do see it. And I'm telling you that someday it will be so utterly destroyed that not one of these massive stones will be left upon another. They'll all be torn down. Whatever you see here, someday that's gone. It's gone. That's exactly what happened 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. As we mentioned last week, in 70 A.D., in response to a revolt by the Jewish people against Rome, the Roman army, under a man by the name of Titus, first he was general, then later he became emperor, they destroyed not only the city of Jerusalem, but they destroyed the entire complex as, as well. It was actually uh, burnt down, and, and the Roman soldiers tried to preserve the gold that was in the temple and on the temple blocks. You see, Titus didn't simply conquer Jerusalem. He leveled the entire city to the ground, which included the walls around the city, the houses in the city, and the temple complex at the heart of the city. So that as Jesus predicted, not one stone was left upon another. It all came to pass. It was all torn down. Now, some may, may question that because some of you have been to Israel. You've been to what's known as the Western Wall, previously known as the Wailing Wall. And you might think, but what are those stones? Aren't they part of the temple? No. Those stones that you see, those massive stones, were never a part of the temple. That's why the Jewish people call that wall the Wailing Wall, because they wailed and cried because that was the wall that was closest. That was the last remaining wall closest to the temple. That was not the temple, though. 
the, the western wall was merely the retaining wall, the retaining stones of the western wall upon which the temple mount or complex stood. It's just a wall that went up and you had the temple on top. It was never a part of the temple. So the stones you see there are not a contradiction to what Jesus said. So what do we learn about the Olivet Discourse from these verses? We learn that, that this teaching on prophecy grew out of the disciples' confusion over why God would allow the temple to be destroyed. Now, what this tells us then is that the Olivet Discourse that Jesus was about to say and give to these people had to do in prophecy with Israel, not the church. It's not related to the church. It's about future events that relate to Israel. In other words, the prophecies in the Olivet Discourse focus on Christ's return as it relates to Israel and only Israel. That's important to understand. It grew out of what Jesus had said to the Jewish nation, and it was his answer to what will take place in the end days as it relates to Israel and the Jewish people. And just to affirm that this is precisely what the Olivet Discourse is about, you have to understand, put it in its context, you have Jewish disciples, Jewish men, asking the Jewish Messiah about the Jewish temple that he says is going to be destroyed in the heart of the Jewish city, Jerusalem, in the heart of the Jewish nation of Israel. And in the process of giving his explanation, the entire Olivet Discourse has a Jewish flavor, has a Jewish flavor. He's not talking about the world in general, and he's certainly not talking about the church. He's talking about Jewish people and Israel. Let me show this to you. Notice verse 16. Jesus said, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When these things begin to take place, you who are in Judea, get up and flee to the mountains. Now, Judea is a region in Israel. He's not talking about you who are in another country. You who are in Judea, get up and flee. This is very Jewish. Notice, notice in verse 20, he said, when you do flee, pray that your flight will not be in the winter. Why not in the winter? Because in the winter, the heavy rains come. I've been in Israel in November and the rains start to come and they can be quite heavy. Pray that you won't have to be hindered by flooding because of the rains. And notice he goes on to say in verse 20, pray that your flight be not on a Sabbath. Why? Because in Israel on Sabbath, essentially everything shuts down. How are you getting out? Notice verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand that the holy place he's talking about is a rebuilt temple, a rebuilt temple. He said that Daniel, a Jewish prophet, said that something is going to happen that will be such an abomination that it will leave the temple desolate, abandoned. Once again. Jewish prophet writing about a Jewish temple, in this case, a rebuilt temple. All in the context of Israel. So it's fairly obvious just from these brief observations that whatever Jesus had to say about the future in the Olivet Discourse was for the sake of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. He's not saying it directly to Christians living today. Now, you may wonder then, 
Why should we study this? How could this be relevant for us? Why is this study of the Olivet Discourse so important if it has nothing to do directly with the church or with Christians today? Well, let me let me tell you why. Because anytime you study prophecy, we're reminded of a number of important truths and lessons. Anytime we study it. First of all, Bible prophecy reminds us that God is sovereignly in control of everything. Everything. See, as we go through the Olivet Discourse, we're going to study about the most difficult time in human history. The most difficult time. Jesus said that. Notice verse 21. He said, for then there will be a great tribulation. Notice this, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. No matter what atrocities have taken place in history, Jesus said this time period will be the worst. It'll be the worst. It'll be a time of unprecedented natural catastrophes, persecution for believers. They'll be persecuted by a man we call the Antichrist, as well as others. There'll be false teaching that will abound. There'll be untold horrors, so much so that notice in verse 22 what Jesus said. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What Jesus is saying is that if God didn't intervene and end these days of tribulation, nobody's making it out alive. Nobody. It's that horrible. That horrible. Now, folks, it's in the midst of those days of tribulation that the Olivet Discourse reminds us that God is sovereignly in control of everything. Obviously, Jesus is predicting all that's going to take place. So he knows what's going to be taking place. But think with me a step further. Jesus not only knows what's going to be taking place, he is orchestrating what's going to take place. He has determined what's going to take place. Obviously, God knows everything. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. But some of us have not realized that God is sovereign. When we say God is sovereign, that means that all of these things have been decreed by him. He's determined them. He's orchestrating them. Every single one of them. See, the Olivet Discourse, then, is a wonderful reminder to us that even in the midst of our pain, our personal tribulations, our our suffering today, our trials, God is still on the throne. No matter what you're going through right now, that has been determined by God. He doesn't just know about it. He's brought it into your life. He sovereignly sends it into your life. And he has a purpose in bringing that pain, those trials upon you right now. Prophecy reminds us of that. God is sovereign. Things don't happen by chance. Second lesson that the Olivet Discourse has for us is that it reminds us to be ready for the Lord to take us home. Now, I mentioned the rapture before. I don't believe for one moment the rapture is mentioned here in Matthew 24 or 25. But the return of Christ is mentioned here in the sense that he comes back to earth. The rapture is where we go to him. The return of Christ is where he comes to us. And part of the purpose of the Olivet Discourse is to tell the people to be ready for his return. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 42 and following. Matthew 24, starting at verse 42. Jesus said, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord 
is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert. He would not have allowed his house to be broken into. I mean, that's such a truism. Of course, if you know when a thief's going to come, you're waiting up for him. Verse 44, for this reason, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he is. So part of the purpose of teaching us prophecy is to say, be ready, be ready. In fact, chapter 25 is about parables that teach be ready, be ready. That is a solemn warning for us today. Not only are we to be ready for Christ's return at any moment, We must be ready to face the attacks of the enemy of our souls, Satan. He has little time left to attack Christians, and he is doing so in ever-increasing intensity. You can listen to this and other messages on our website, versebyverseradio.org. They are available for free downloading. There is a podcast service you can sign up for that is also free of charge. Our goal is to help you in your daily walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about this broadcast or anything in the Christian life, please feel free to call us at 727-239-0306. Our website again is versebyverseradio, all one word, dot O-R-G. The phone number is 727-239-0306. In our next class, Pastor Steve will conclude this message on the disciples' misunderstanding of when Christ will return to establish his earthly kingdom. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.